0: We are on, I believe. Well, it's page twenty-eight for me. I, my, our pages are a little. Middle fewer. twenty-seven. 27, twenty-seven for you. Okay, so we're talking about indwelling in the Old Testament, right? Yeah. I believe. Okay, because uh, one of the things we go, we're, we we said we're going in concentric circles, down in the middle, and so we're we're going to end up with the Holy Spirit with as with his specific role in the church, and. Uh, we know that there are new things that happen, starting in the Book of Acts and continuing on. And so the question is always, okay, when, when do we when do we get to that? When have we reached the center circle? And there are a number of folks who are dispensationalists, that is, those who uh, who hold that uh, there's a difference between Israel and the Church, and there's a distinction uh, between what the Church is doing and what Israel was doing, and the mission of each. And uh, there are there are those in, in, within that category, dispensationalists, who say indwelling is one of those brand new things. And uh, my suggestion tonight, at least in the first portion of this, uh, of, our, of our time tonight, is that indwelling actually is something that was, that occurred in the Old Testament. And let's see if we can make the case first. We're going to make a, a positive statement in three points. And then we're going to answer some objections, because there certainly are uh, some to be raised. So first of all, I say here that indwelling in the Old Testament does seem to be uh, manifested in several passages of the Old Testament, uh, particularly Numbers 27, verse 18. And here is a a statement about Joshua. Numbers 27:18, and there is a. Um, this is early on. This is not when he's selected to be the next leader of Israel, but rather this is this is back when he is he is chosen for another leadership role within the uh, community. And the reason he is selected here in verse uh, 13, 18 is, it says, take Joshua, the son of Nun. Why? Well, because he's a man. In whom is the Spirit, and lay your hand on him. So he's selected because the Holy Spirit's activity was evident within him. He was uh, he was a man in whom was the Spirit. Now note this was before uh, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. We find later on in Joshua chapter one verse 5, end of Deuteronomy, when Moses passes off the scene, we find that there is an anointing of Joshua. The Holy Spirit comes upon him and he is able to lead the people. This is before this. this. In fact, the reason he's selected for these leadership roles is precisely because the Holy Spirit already was in him. Now, not everyone in the Jewish community has the Holy Spirit in him. In fact, we find that uh, Many, if not most, of the Jewish community, as they're wandering through the wilderness, are actually unbelievers. They're described that way, and uh, and so we find that Joshua is an exception to that. He's a man; he is the Holy Spirit. Um, Proverbs, 20, uh, Proverbs one, verse twenty-three, I think, is a reference here uh, to the Holy Spirit. Um, these are these are some words that are being given. Uh, by apparently by Solomon to his son, turn to my reproof, repent if I can put it that way, and behold, I will pour my spirit on you. This is something that was available to the Old Testament saint. Repent, and I will pour out my holy spirit upon you. Uh, Genesis 41, perhaps uh, not the best example. This is a this is a this is a situation where uh, the Pharaoh was talking about Joseph, and he says, can, any, can we find any person like this man, Joseph, one in whom is the Spirit of God? The reason I say we take that with a little bit of a grain of salt is because I'm not sure that Pharaoh uh, was necessarily theologically savvy enough to understand the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But I will say this. He recognized something different about Joshua, and he attributed it to the work of God in his life. and uh, I would say that most likely uh, Joseph was indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Uh, whether the Pharaoh spoke more than he knew is, is, a, is a good question here. But I think we have an example here of someone who is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, certainly. So we've got these cases, these instances in the Old Testament, where we find the Holy Spirit is available to believers. Joshua had the Holy Spirit. In, he was in him. We can have the Holy Spirit in us if we repent. And then Joseph, apparently, as well. So we've got these examples. Not perhaps as many as you see in the New Testament. We've got these examples. I say, letter B, and I think this is probably even the, the stronger argument here, uh, uh, Numbers 2 and 3 here. The nature of regeneration demands permanent indwelling in all the dispensations. Now, so we looked at these verses last time. But we find here in Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will put my Holy Spirit in you. All these three things are referencing the same thing. Uh, this, This statement here, I will regenerate you. You will get a new heart. You will get a new nature. You will get a new spirit. And it will be in the person of the Holy Spirit that is in you. So that is regeneration. But those things aren't ripped out of us. No, it's it's something that continues in us. Uh, we don't we don't lose the new heart. The Old Testament saint didn't lose the new heart. He didn't lose his new spirit. He didn't lose the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes in some sort of a permanent fashion here. Okay. And then again, Romans eight nine to eleven. We looked at it again at this last time. So if you, you're welcome to turn to it any time. But uh, you know, the statement here: if You are not controlled by the Holy Spirit by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. But if if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. But if he is in you, your body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. Okay? And so the statement here is, If you are successfully overcoming the sin nature here in this room, in the church, then it's because you have the Holy Spirit. Now, so let's back it up here to the Old Testament. People overcame their sin nature and were capable of pleasing God. They were capable of being a man after God's own heart. In fact, we find. Uh, How is it that they did this? Well, I think we have to say that the Holy Spirit was active then as well. Okay? So the Holy Spirit. So I say theologically, it seems necessary that the Holy Spirit is active in the life of the believer if they are to be described as regenerate, and if they are to progress in their sanctification. Right? The believer is called the man with the spirit. There's a natural man, the man without the spirit, and there's a spiritual man, the man with the spirit. There doesn't seem to be any category in between, and so it seems that if you are regenerate, you, you by definition have the Holy Spirit. So not only do we have the Bible verses, which I think strongly suggest that there was was indwelling in the Old Testament, I think we have what, what I call theological necessity. In order for you to be regenerate and to stay regenerate and to progress in your sanctification then you have to have the Holy Spirit in you, influencing you to righteousness. Okay? Are there any questions on the positive case then for the Holy Spirit's indwelling in the Old Testament? Okay? If you, if you haven't been schooled in the opposite school of thought, you probably at this point are saying, yeah, of course, duh. Um, but if you have been schooled the other school of thought, they're, 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 it's, it's sort of been inter, interwoven in the fabric of dispensational thinking, that there wasn't indwelling in the Old Testament. So some of you are saying, why is he spending this time doing this? And others of you are saying, wow, I've never heard this before. So, so I, I recognize I've got probably a diverse audience out there tonight. So if you have questions, feel free to ask them. Probably someone else is thinking them too. Uh, so. That's the positive case, I think, for there being uh, indwelling in the Old Testament. But then we've got some passages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that suggest, perhaps, that that believers were not indwelt by the Holy Spirit, or perhaps at least that they could lose the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at some of them and see if we can't make heads and tails of what the Holy Spirit's activity was like in the Old Testament that allows the scripture writers to use these kinds of terms to describe them. Particularly, we have this problem here in uh, 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16. Probably a good one to turn to. Because it's a a major problem text. Well, something we have to explain. we find elsewhere in scripture that the Holy Spirit would come upon people. He would come upon people to prophesy. He came upon Samson, for instance, so that he was able to pick up a bone and kill a thousand people. So we've got the Holy Spirit coming upon people. And this, in this case, we actually have not only the Holy Spirit coming upon someone, but also the Holy Spirit leaving someone. This is it's a very, it's a very uh, interesting passage here. 1 Samuel 16, 13, and 14. This is when Samuel is coming to anoint David to be the new king of Israel. Saul has been a king up till this point, but we find that he's made some rather serious blunders uh, such that his kingdom was going to be taken away from him. So Samuel goes, and you you know the story about he finds David among the sheep, and all his brothers are standing about there, and the Lord says to Samuel, David, this this is the one. Rise and anoint this one. He is the one. So, verse 13, Samuel took this horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Then Samuel went on to Ramah. Next paragraph. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So we've got David, ostensibly a pretty good fellow, a believer apparently, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him after this symbolic act of anointing with oil, and simultaneously we find that the Holy Spirit leaves Saul. In fact, David seems to be poignantly aware of what happened to Saul in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is his uh, psalm of confession after he had sinned with Bathsheba. Of course, he committed adultery and uh, actually killed the husband. Had, or not directly, but had the husband killed. It's a rather a serious thing that he did here. And uh, he, he goes through this psalm and he is uh, making his confession. One of the things he says is rather interesting. Verse 11, do not cast me from your spirit. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So he's apparently remembering what happened to Saul. The Holy Spirit had left Saul. An evil spirit came upon him. And David says, please, please, don't, don't, don't let that happen to me. I beg of you, God, don't, don't take your Holy Spirit from me as you took him away from Saul. And so you've got these, these these passages here where the Holy Spirit seems, seems seems to come and go. Yes, sir. I got a note written here. I don't, I don't have any idea where it was from. It's uh, two times in Old Testament Isaiah 63:11. Does it say the same thing there, or is it just mention the Holy Spirit? I think Isaiah 63:11 would be the Holy Spirit coming in its prophetic function. If I'm correct, I, I'm, I'm checking. Which I, know, I had no idea it. <laughs> <laughs> let me just find it sixty say sixty three eleven yeah <sighs> yeah well yeah that's that's it is a verse that we're i i hadn't i didn't have that in my list of things to look at, but I think it can be can I, can I hold you off? Because I think we can fit this right into what your' okay. into the discussion is coming right up okay, okay. i think it, i think it's all all the same, same same thing the Holy Spirit's doing. And I say here, just by way of answer, that the Holy Spirit has more than one function. I sound like a broken record, I think, when I say that sometimes, because the Holy Spirit does more than one thing. And our tendency is to lump all the activities of the Holy Spirit together in one big conglomerate and say either he's doing all of them or he's doing none of them. But I think we can, we can pinpoint specific kinds of activity of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and I don't think we have to say they're all the same thing as indwelling. For instance, the Holy Spirit would come upon a prophet so that the prophet would prophesy. While the Holy Spirit was resting upon him, that prophet, would, when he spoke, was speaking the words of God. And then the Holy Spirit could leave him in the sense that whatever that prophet now was speaking was not prophetic and authoritative in that sense. But uh, it doesn't really have anything to do with his indwelling or non-indwelling. In fact, you know, we, we find, for instance, when Saul was was chasing after David, you know, with his trying to kill him, as God with a bit of a sense of humor, what does He do? He arrests him, stops him, puts His Holy Spirit upon him, and so Saul goes around prophesying. You know, it, What what was that about? Well, it doesn't seem to have have anything to do with the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit is doing is coming upon him in such a way so that he can prophesy. So it is is his prophetic anointing, if we can call it that. We also find, uh, as you go through the scriptures, that you find that the Holy Spirit comes upon people for great acts of service. Uh, We find Bezalel. Rather obscure character in the Old Testament. Uh, when he was, he was apparently the uh, the engineer in charge of constructing the tabernacle, and the Holy Spirit came upon him so that he was skillful in his engraving. Okay, so the Holy Spirit actually enabled him to be skillful at his craft. The Holy Spirit would come upon Samson, for instance. Such that he had superhuman strength. You know, I don't think this, this means, I don't, don't think of Samson as just being an incredible Hulk guy. who was just natively, so immensely strong that he could take on a thousand people by himself. Certainly, we know he was a powerful fellow, uh, but we also know that when his hair was cut, his strength left him. It wasn't just that his muscles turned to jelly. Something left him. The Holy Spirit, we find, left him. So the Holy Spirit would come upon him so that he could do exploits. We find that multiple occasions the Holy Spirit would come upon someone so that he could they could lead them into battle. And so you've got the Holy Spirit doing this kind of activity as well. So we find the Holy Spirit is not monolithic in his activities. Not doing every, not everything he does is the same thing comes upon people to prophesy. He comes upon people to do incredible things. And then I think uh, the one I think that probably explains this passage in, in 1 Samuel 16 and the passage in Psalm 51 and also the passage that was uh, pointed out here from Isaiah is a specific ministry of the Holy Spirit that I want to spend just a little bit of time on because I think it's rather an important topic, a thread that goes through the Old Testament. And that is what we might call and what some theologians have called the theocratic anointing. This is something that was unique uh, in the Old Testament. It was, a, it was a ministry apparently of the Holy Spirit, such that people were able to rule God's people. So that's why I've defined find it here, and uh, in the middle of the, the beginning of that text box, a special ministry of the Holy Spirit given to the head of the what I've called the mediatorial kingdom. And the reason I say that is because who ultimately is the king of Israel? God is the king of Israel. But we find that there mm-hmm. is a human head, a king normally, although not consistently. So there's a human head who is mediating the kingdom on behalf of the true king, God. Okay? So that's why I call it a mediatorial king that enabled him this this function this ministry of the holy spirit enabled him to function in that capacity as the head of the kingdom so i say it consisted largely of administrative ability to carry out the affairs the nation of israel as the human vicar the representative for god as he ruled israel and i say what's what's a vicar that that what that mean I was asked last week to explain some of my words, so I figured I'd better do that. <laughs> vicar, we we talk, who's who's called the vicar of Christ? Pope. The Pope. Why? What's what that mean? He's, he's, um, he's representative. Representative of Christ. Very good. So and so what we what do we we sometimes call the uh the uh the atonement, the vicarious yeah. atonement? Okay, what does that mean? He represented us. He substituted himself for us. So so that's why that's why I call him the vicarious head. So he's the mediatorial head, the guy who's standing for God as the king of the of the, the nation of Israel. Now, this is quite a bold statement here to make because there's this whole ministry of the Holy Spirit that is rather prominent in the Old Testament. So I've got to I've got to demonstrate that, and I think I can. Okay? I say think, I think first, it was given to Moses. Okay, uh, And uh, Numbers 11.17, perhaps, is the Old Testament text to go to. Numbers 11.17. We find uh, that Moses, who is in charge of the people, he says, I can't handle this. This is too much. I need help and so it says here I will come God says I will come down and speak with you and I will take of the spirit that is on you and put the Spirit upon them so that they can help you carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone Now we don't have any particular text that says when exactly the Holy Spirit comes upon Moses in the first place I'd like to have that but we don't We do know from this text though, That the Holy Spirit has been given to Moses, and what is the function? Well, to rule the people. Carry the burden of the people so that you will not have to carry it alone. So he's carrying the burden of the people. He's representing them before God. You know, he's the one who speaks to them. They have to go to the tent of the meeting, in fact, to do this. That's where they met with God. And so God meets with him and says, okay, I'm going to take this Holy Spirit, spread it out a bit. And so we find that. Moses had the Holy Spirit on him, as the leader of the people, and at this point it was distributed, shared with others. So that's my second point. Numbers 11:17, right here. The, the um, anointing that had been given to Moses was distributed to the 70 elders. So they are able to assist Moses in ruling the people. So this is what the Holy Spirit is coming to do. Uh, God made Moses to be the ruler and deliverer, and so now he takes of, of this Holy Spirit and spreads it out. Now when we get to the end of Moses' life, we would wonder, okay, so what's going to happen now? Someone is going to take Moses' place, but it's not just that Moses has to be replaced. So also this, I can say, this right to rule, uh, this uh, this responsibility, this this ability, was transferred to Joshua. Deuteronomy 34:9. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom. Moses laid his hands on him, and the sons of Israel listened to him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, so so Moses comes along to Joshua puts his hand on him, and at that point, what happens? He was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands upon him, transferred symbolically and actually that authority to rule the people such that the result was that the sons of Israel listened to Joshua and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. There's a transfer of power. It's repeated in Joshua 1.5. Just as I have been with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Right? I mean, we tend to take that verse and put it on the wall. It's you know, wall art and a lot of houses, but I think it's probably a little bit more significant than just that the Holy Spirit is with us in an indwelling sense. The Holy Spirit was going to be with Joshua such that he would be capable of leading a nation of more than a million people. Something that he was not natively equipped to do. Then we find that the anointing comes upon the judges. Now we don't see that the anointing comes upon every single one of them, but we do find him coming on several. Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. So these four judges the Holy Spirit comes upon them so that they are not—they <coughs> able first to deliver the people by oftentimes exploits of war, and then to rule them as well. And so that's why they're called judges, because they judge, they ruled the people, and they were empowered by the Holy Spirit to do it. Uh, they were the interim heads of the theocracy before the king was established. Make sense? Then the anointing comes to Saul. First Samuel 10, this is when he's anointed. We find that uh, Samuel takes this flask, pours it on Saul's head, and says, The Lord has anointed you leader over his inheritance. Okay, so that's why we call it a theocratic anointing, because there was a, a physical act of anointing with oil. So the oil came down, and the with oil then would be symbolic of the fact that the Holy Spirit actually was poured out upon that person, Saul so, oh, in this case. And the result was, in verses 6 to 10, that he becomes another man. His heart was changed. He prophesied. And he was able to do whatever his hand found to do because God was with him. This wasn't the case before. Now it is. He's able to do things he was never capable of doing before. And he's a a rather large, ungainly farmer. Uh, He stood head and shoulders above all the people. Um, Timid fellow. In fact, after this event, what does he do? Goes back to farming. But he didn't know what to do But what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon him? Well whatever his hand finds to do, he's able to do it. He's got a special endowment of power from the Holy Spirit to lead the people. And so we find uh, after he goes and goes back to farming, um, a crisis comes up, at the beginning of chapter 11. there's, a, there's an invasion here. So the Ammonites were attacking, and so there's a call to Saul. Hey, Saul, you're, you're, you're the man. You're the new king. What are you going to do about this? And Saul's out there farming, and I'm sure he's thinking, uh-huh. oh, i was afraid this was going to happen. And, but what happens? Well, the Holy Spirit comes upon him mightily in verse 6. So that he became angry, he took a yoke of oxen, cut them in pieces, sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come after me, may this happen to them. <laughs> you know, these, these oxen, chopped up in pieces. If you don't come out and follow me, I'm going to chop you up in pieces too. And very beautifully they come out. Well, this was not, this was not Saul's nature, but the Holy Spirit came upon him mightily so that he was able to take a very loosely networked group of people and unite them for battle. Now, I would say that Saul is probably not regenerated as a result of any of these experiences. Now, there's a a debate as to whether Saul was ever a believer. My guess is he wasn't. He doesn't seem to ever display the fruits of true repentance or obedience. I say the change was not regeneration. In fact, the term is never used of regeneration. Probably a change from a backwoods farmer to a person capable of leading the nation of Israel. Um, you now, after after it was all said and done, what happened? He, the Holy Spirit leads him, and what does Saul do? Well, he starts chasing after David, trying to kill him. Um, is unsuccessful, and ultimately, it, the, the end for him is... Consorting with witches in an attempt to raise you know bring people back from the dead and suicide I can't say for sure that Saul was an unbeliever but these kinds of activities at the end of his life do not speak well of of his of his spiritual condition so I can't say for sure I'm, I'm glad I'm not the judge to determine that um, but uh, it does appear that he does not, exhibit, he does not exhibit many of the fruits of repentance and righteousness. Uh, so, I, I don't see these things as the Holy Spirit coming in a regenerative or an indwelling sense, but rather in this capacity to lead the people. And so we find in chapter 16, and this is the passage that started us off, that the Holy Spirit departs from Saul and it happens so, so just so happens to be that this is exactly the same time that the Holy Spirit comes upon David. The Holy Spirit couldn't be upon two kings at the same time, at least not two rival kings. It was shared by 70 elders, but here were these two rival kings. The Holy Spirit leaves one and comes to the other. Okay, So that's that's what happens here in First Samuel 16. David becomes the rightful king at this time. He doesn't actually start exercising his authority at this point, but for God, he was the king of Israel, and Saul was no longer. So the Holy Spirit leaves Saul, comes to David, and then, of course, Psalm 51:11. David says, "I don't want to lose this." He's not saying, "I don't, I, I, I don't want to lose my salvation." He's not saying, "I don't want to, I, I don't want to lose the indwelling Holy Spirit." He says, "I don't want to lose my place here as your servant, leading your people, Israel." That's what he's worried about. That's what he's concerned about. Um, he didn't He didn't want to lose this. You know, I forgot to come back to your Isaiah 63. I, I passed right past it. It wasn't in my notes, and so it skipped me. But the, the, I think you, you can fit that right in there. So 63.11, right? His people recalled the days of old, the days of Moses and his people, which he... Where is he who brought them through the sea with the shepherd of his flock? Where is he who put his Holy Spirit among them and sent his glorious arm of power to be at Moses' right hand to divide the waters before him? Okay. So here we've got the Holy Spirit um, coming upon Moses in a leadership capacity. So... Okay. That's my side. Coming back to your passage, I think it fits right right in with what we're talking about. Okay, so leaves leaves Moses, comes to the judges, comes to Saul, comes to David, and David's concerned that he's going to lose it. Okay. I say here, David is not asking to keep him saved. This was non-redemptive. He is asking that the anointing for service as king not be removed because of his sin with Bathsheba, just as it had happened to Saul. Now Saul did not become unsaved when uh, but he lost the spirit. Instead, he became unfit to rule. In fact, he became demented. Moses his mind? Uh, when physical anointing occurred, it reflected an actual anointing by God. So that, that's anointing with oil. Note that the kings are called God's anointed ones. Touch not God, the Lord's anointed. It's not a reference to your pastor, although you should be very careful about bringing an accusation against an elder, certainly. But that's not the point. Touch not God's anointed. is Don't touch the man that God has appointed to be the ruler over Israel. And that's why David was hesitant to kill Saul when he had the opportunity in the cave, because he couldn't. And he didn't want to touch God's anointed, because that was that was a scary thing to do. So God's anointed man was under special dispensation of protection that made attacks on his person grievous, especially those in the line of David. In fact, this may be the reason why David is is so free with these what they call the imprecatory psalms, where he calls down judgment on his enemies. Um, there's always this question: Can we can we do that? <laughs> can I can I can I take my favorite <coughs> political candidate or my least favorite political candidate, and you know? Pray those imprecatory prayers. You know, may his head be dashed against the rocks. You know, can I, can I, can I, do that? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. But I think probably what what emboldens David to this is because he's got this promise: God's anointed man, the king, is under divine protection from God, and God has promised anybody who goes after the king, God will snap him in two. And so. So David's able to say, you know, they're coming after me, God. You promised to snap them too Do it, please. Sure. So, so it does seem like David was probably in a in a situation where he was a little had a little bit more liberty to do those make those kinds of prayers. Um, I would be at least hesitant to pray down those instructive prayers on your your enemies. Any questions on that? There's a there's a little. Interesting psalms. Okay, so that we call these these royal psalms, and that uh, there there's this anointing that comes on all the kings, and ultimately comes to the last king, who is Jesus. Comes upon Solomon. It's not directly connected with his anointing as king, but what happens? You know, Saw Solomon is given the kingdom, lays down to sleep that night, and what happens? God comes along and says, What do you want? Give you have anything you want? Solomon says, I What's God said? we have got, okay. he's, got the, he's got And I, I think this is, this is his way of saying, you've got the resources of God at your disposal. Because you're the king. You're the new king. The, noi- and the only thing I say would have come upon all the kings of Judah. Now, we don't, see every single, we, don't, we don't see this in every single king, uh, but I think it follows that this, this would have come to all the, the kings of Judah and ultimately then comes to Jesus Christ as his baptism. It's not a mistake, the symbolism that we find occurring in the early parts of the New Testament. Matthew 3.16, after he was baptized, Jesus comes out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and the Spirit of God descends as a dove and lights upon him. Okay, So, we would expect this. Here is Jesus, assuming his public role in offering the kingdom. He's able to save people. The king is in your midst, if you will have him... So he's the he's the he is the new king offering the kingdom to them. And at the very beginning of his public ministry, what happens? The Holy Spirit comes and rests upon him. Is there any precedent for that? Yes, Isaiah 11:2. The Holy Spirit will rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is going to rest on him. Matthew 12, Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel, not cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the street. A battered reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. He will assume these regal functions. Why? Because my Holy Spirit has been placed upon him. And we actually see the term anointing used in Luke chapter 4, quoting Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord, Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. Preach the gospel to the poor, to to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Why? Because he's the king. He's been anointed king. Acts 10.38, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power so that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. God was with him. Okay, so we have this theme that seems to have thread its way through much of the Old Testament culminating in the person of Jesus Christ, this theocratic anointing, this special ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament where he empowered the kingdom, the, the, the ruler of the kingdom, uh, to fill his role. Any questions on that? It's kind of a long answer to that, but I think it's an important one because it's a a thread that really connects a lot in the Old Testament. So I think it's an important thing to look at, this particular ministry of the Holy Spirit. Yes, sir. So, John, as it became the church age, our age now, Mm -hmm. the Holy Spirit was basically just for leaders and for special... Yeah. Things going on until our age now. Now we're all. Yeah, I don't. I don't okay. think we see this. This theocratic anointing because the last king has it. Yeah, I don't... <laughs> 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 No, the last king has it, and he's still. Right. And, and and you know. And still at king. some point, he will. He will start asserting his crown rights. But no one else is going to have that at this point. It's already come to Christ. Well, it's not going to be shared with anybody else at this point. I mean we we all have the Holy Spirit. We have the we Holy Spirit. And and, and and that's the point, that this is a different ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay. Yes, we do have indwelling. So saying that the Holy Spirit came and went, left Saul, came upon David, threatened to leave David, all that is not saying that indwelling is, is in view here. Mm-hmm. This is something completely different. So the indwelling has only been since Jesus. Well, no, I think the indwelling has been has, it has been the entire time. Believers had the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, uh, but there was a, an additional work of the Holy Spirit that would have been a the theocratic anointing that we don't see today. Okay. So the anointing carried on through the apostles over? I think that's probably more, more on, on par with what we saw the prophets having. You know, for the Holy Spirit to come upon the prophets. They weren't so much the leaders of Israel, the Holy Spirit would come upon them in, in what we might call a prophetic anointing and uh, we find that there's something very similar to that going on in, in the apostolic period, that the, the Holy Spirit would come upon them to give revelation um, and we'll revisit that when we talk about whether there is any sort of ministry like that occurring today. My, my, I'm going to argue that no it's not that's still a few weeks away but but I think that's probably more on par with what's going on in the apostolic period. And you say you're gonna argue that it's not? Are there I'm not gonna fight. <laughs> 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 but what I'm trying to get at is that there are good people on our campus. Yes, there there is a there is an argument that can be raised for both positions. And I and I hope that the argument for cessationism, for cessationism, the ending of those gifts um, is more defensive and more biblically. Question? Um, in John 14, uh-huh. when um, the Lord tells his disciples what not to have a and that can be a promise that he could yes. another comforter, and then he hides that. So very glad um, you asked. Next point. John 14:17. So that's our next point. Do you, do, you, do you have a set of notes here? I don't. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our next point. John 14. So you. You. you Nice segue here. This new new section here. There is this passage that says He abides with you, and will be in you. And uh, there's another passage, John 7:39, that says that the Holy Spirit has not yet been given. So we've got two passages similar here that would seem to suggest that the Holy Spirit is going to be doing something new. And I'll say, yes, the Holy Spirit is going to be doing something new. But probably the question we need to answer, is that indwelling that is in view. So let's, let's see if we can't talk about that. Let's talk about this uh, John 14, 17. There's this statement here, He abides now with you, and will be in you. So, what does what does this mean? If he was with and now is in, does that mean that indwelling is new because it didn't used to be in; it was only with? Well, there's a few arguments here that I think least bullet points here that uh, I can that uh, we can we can say that there is something new in the New Testament, but I don't think we have to say it's indwelling. So I say here some do argue that the Spirit was with believers in some external sense in the Old Testament, but will conduct an internal ministry in believers after the Ascension. Sorry about the Greek words here, but there's but there are two terms here that are used, and so I want to make sure you saw that. It's going to become important here. First of all, I'll say this. There is a textual problem, and I don't like to bring this up too often here because it can get really... Really bogged down by the the details here, Um, and I don't certainly don't want to, you know, cast any doubt on your Bible that you can say I don't even know maybe there's all kinds of errors in here that, you know, since I don't know Greek I can't find them. But I I just in the in the interest of saying that there is a question mark here, I think it's important to at least say this. Uh, There's a big question here as to whether it does say he was this way he was with you and shall be in you there's a very good chance that the same verb is used he is with you and is in you okay so if if that is the case it wouldn't seem that this verse is saying that there's something brand new coming going on so we're going to we're going to keep moving along here with the the assumption that it does say was and will be um, but realize that there's at least some question, a pr- pretty significant question, as to whether um, that's exactly what, what is said here. But let's, let's go on, because I think the argument is not made by the subtleties of Greek. Okay. Second here, the Holy Spirit's ministry with believers as an external function, exclusive to the Old Testament, doesn't really hold up, because... If you take a look at verses 16 and 23 in this very same chapter, you find that the Holy Spirit is going to remain with believers in the New Testament. So we we look at that and say, huh, okay, so he was with and will be in, but he will continue to be with. Okay, So it does not seem that that John's point is to really make this point, there was a with ministry, that's going to be done away with, and now there's going to be an in ministry because he, he suggests here that there's a with ministry that continues. Okay? First point here. Okay. Second, or third, I guess, our third bullet point, point. If we assume that the text is accurate as reflected in most modern translations, so the is and will be, we still find that the Holy Spirit's ministry with believers as an external function exclusive the Old Testament doesn't hold up under theological scrutiny. So it doesn't seem to hold up under exegetical or what the verses around it say. It doesn't seem to hold up theologically either. And So I, I ask a question here, and I've, I've never been able to find anybody to give me an answer and what, what exactly do we mean by a with ministry of the Holy Spirit that is different from the in ministry? I, I, I still scratch my head. I, I've heard one uh, theologian say the Holy Spirit used to sit on the shoulder, and now he's inside. Now that doesn't mean to Yeah, yeah. What exactly does that mean? What, what what would the difference be if he was with and now he's going to be in? Remember, indwelling is not primarily a matter of the Holy Spirit's location, right? It's a matter of him interacting with our minds, right? And so it doesn't seem to me that the, the, the point is the location of where he is, but what he's doing. And what he was doing in the Old Testament seems to be exactly what he is doing in the New Testament far as what he's affecting our sanctification, Um, so I mean, I I welcome you. You know, say, I I know, I know the difference. I I, I really delight to 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 understand it because I I don't understand what what could be different between a with and an in ministry of the Holy Spirit. But even if we do assume it. The distinction is probably not between an external ministry and an internal ministry, but a distinction between the ministry of the Spirit operating through Christ and something else—the ministry of the Spirit and the believers as the believer's primary comforter. So, right now, Jesus says, "I'm right here." The Holy Spirit, in some sense, is, you know, in the shadows, in, in, in the of Jesus. Right there, Jesus is helping the disciples, and they're going around doing all sorts of things because Jesus is with them. I'm going to leave. The Holy Spirit's going to take over. Okay. Is that does that mean that the Holy Spirit wasn't there or wasn't there before Christ came? No, but it does seem like since the whole, Jesus stole the show for a while, if I can put it that way. Uh, Thanks holy way of putting it, but it does seem that, the, that Jesus you know, is, is center, front and center here at this point. And the Holy Spirit's ministry, at least among believers, is in the background while Jesus is there. So it does seem that the Holy Spirit does come along, and perhaps it's a reference here to this new capacity that would only occur after Christ's resurrection and ascension. Okay? He's going to give them gifts that they never had before, or perhaps he's talking, because the context is, about the, this new, new, uh, new information that the, whole, the, the, uh, the holy apostles were going to give. Uh, perhaps the, the point here is that they're going to, the Holy Spirit's going to come to give new revelation. Okay? That's what we find here in, uh, in uh, John 14, verse 26. It's an interesting passage here. It tells us a little bit of what's going on. John's preparing. Good Jesus is preparing his disciples for him to go away. He says here in verse 25, "All of these things I have spoken to you <clears throat> while I'm with you, but the whole, the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, from the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I said to you." Okay. So, it's almost as though he's saying, "Okay, put away your notebooks." Don't bother taking notes right now, because you need to listen to me right now. You better have teachers say that to you. Later on, you'll get the information you need. The Holy Spirit's going to come and give you that data. Same thing is said in chapter 15, verse 26. When the counselor comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the spirit of truth that goes out from the Father, he will testify about me, and then you will testify because you have been with me from the beginning. So the apostles have some sort of a privileged position here. They've been with Jesus from the beginning, hearing all of this reason, all of this information that Jesus is giving, and the Holy Spirit's going to come alongside and assist them in testifying. I think here, producing the New Testament scriptures Ultimately, okay. I know those verses are sometimes used in, in a sense of, you know, the Holy Spirit. You know, if you're you're walking along and you need a Bible verse, hold, you know, will pop one will pop into your head miraculously. I don't think that's the point. Uh, it seems to be a little bit more of a narrow focus here. The Holy Spirit is going to come alongside those people who have been with Him from the beginning and can remember the information that Jesus gave, and they will testify, they will write down, they will give this authoritative information. So, in in my understanding, there is something new that's going on, but the question is, what is it that's being described as new? Is it indwelling? My answer is, I just don't see that as theologically possible. Rather, I'd like to think that the Holy Spirit's new activity would be his anointing to give apostolic, apostolically authoritative information, the New Testament scriptures, uh, perhaps to come along and give them the gifts of the Holy Spirit that are there to fun- in a function to serve the church, or perhaps a reference to the fact that the Holy Spirit is going to resume His role as the primary Comforter after Jesus is gone. And so, that's that's my understanding of what's going on in in John 14. There is something new, but I'm not sure it's indwelling. I don't know if that answers the question, other questions. Okay. If not then, I'm getting behind. Let's let's really quickly see if we can't do this ceiling thing. I, I, I know we're bumping up on the end of our time, um, but uh, I'm about four pages behind my schedule, so I need to catch up a little bit, or else we're not going to get done. So I say here, resultant work of, of the Holy Spirit's indwelling ministry. If the Holy Spirit is indwelling us, what does, what, what does this do for us? Okay, so, he's, so he's there. What does that mean? Uh, what, what, what good is that to me? Uh, how, how do I profit? How do I benefit from the fact that the Holy Spirit is in me or somehow articulating here with my mind? What does that do for me? Well, there are four things I want to talk about here. Uh, we'll see if we can get the first one done and then we'll, we'll work on the next three next time the sealing ministry of the Holy Spirit, the assuring ministry of the Holy Spirit, the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. These are the four things that the indwelling spirit is doing for us and to us. Okay? And that, and that's why I say there's the resultant works of indwelling. What does this indwelling spirit do for us? Well, these four things. Sealing is the first one, and I think it's the easiest one to, to deal with. I think we can easily get it done in the four minutes we have left. So what is sealing? Well, I say here, the seal of the Holy Spirit is, in fact, the indwelling Spirit, presence of the Holy Spirit that in divinely guarantees our eternal security as believers. I think I've got, I think I've actually got all four of the, the, the passages in which we find the sealing of the Holy Spirit mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, it's not used many, many times, but we've got these four occasions. 2 Corinthians 1:22. God has sealed us by giving us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Okay, so He guarantees the security of our salvation by giving us the Holy Spirit. Uh, Another term here. 2 Corinthians 5:5. God gave us the Spirit as a pledge, a pledge or a guarantee. I uh, maybe maybe it would make a little more sense to us if we if we put it into a into a modern day example here. Maybe you do yard sailing. Yeah, that's what we call it. We make it a verb. I don't know if it's a verb, but we, we, we call it a verb. We make use it as a verb. We go yard sailing, go to yard sale. And uh sometimes we'll be going along and we'll find something, you know, bigger and you know, it's fifty dollars and I only have twenty in my pocket. So what do you do? Well, yeah, you you try and see if they'll take 20, but assuming that fails, yeah, 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 I I know all that. (laughs) They say, no, we're not going to go lower than 50 if you want it for 50, but you only have 20. What do you do? Yeah, you give them a deposit, a pledge, a guarantee. You give them 20 and say, I'll be back in a half hour with my pickup truck and the other $30. Okay. And what does he do? Well, he takes that and sets it aside. It is a pledge, a guarantee that I'm going to return. And we all know that I'm not going to abandon my twenty dollars, so I'm going to return. And so he banks on that, that assumption that I am going to come back with that thirty dollars and he sets it aside. Because anybody who goes to yard sales is so cheap that they're not going to give up that twenty dollars. He doesn't come back. So I do. So what's what's the statement? Why why do I I say this? Well, because the Holy Spirit is given to us as a pledge. It is a guarantee. God's going to come back with his pickup truck, take us with him. And that's that's the idea here. He is our pledge. He is the seal. He has given us something infinitely more valuable than a twenty-dollar bill. He left us the Holy Spirit as a deposit in our heart. And so that's what the indwelling of the Holy Spirit does for us. First the thing that it does for us it guarantees our eternal security. So, Ephesians 1 you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to redemption of God's own possession. Okay? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. So those are the four texts in which this idea of the Holy Spirit as a seal is used. So what's the explanation? Well, the seal of the Holy Spirit is not so much a separate work of the Spirit, per se, He himself is the seal. He is the security deposit that guarantees our eternal redemption. Okay? So that's the first value, the first benefit. First practical thing the Holy Spirit gives us uh, by His indwelling presence. Questions on that one? Still got you done 30 seconds early. So <laughs> next week we'll we'll come back talk about assurance, uh, uh, illumination, and sanctification, and uh, we'll see how we can't uh, catch up a little bit. Okay. Uh, by the way, in two weeks. Uh I won't be here matt uh oh we'll be uh we'll be taking the class for one week that's the seventeenth of November uh, so just to let you know okay we'll see you we'll see you next week.